As we move deeper into the season of Lent, the stakes begin to get higher in Jerusalem. Jesus, having spent three years trying to reimagine the contemporary practice of Judaism, something a bit less legalistic, something more heartfelt, something more focused on love than on law. Jesus takes a step further one day in the temple, literally breaking things and tearing down the status quo with his bare hands. Tired of the corrupt practice of selling forgiveness, which is essentially what the temple system amounted to in those days, Jesus shuts it down. It's worth noting that while this story shows up in all four Gospels, it turns up at the beginning of the Gospels of John, whereas it uh, happens during Jesus' final days in the other three Gospels. That's either an editing decision on the part of John's author, or, as some have uh, suggested, it's because Jesus actually storms the temple twice. Either way, there's no question that Jesus feels strongly about what's happening there. Namely, that the sale of animals for the purposes of sacrifice is bogus. And that the whole game is rigged in favor of the ones in power. You might say that Jesus is trying to trade in something that no longer works for something that does. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove out all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Hear now what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Games, by definition, are supposed to be fun. It doesn't really matter what the game is. It could be football or Pac-Man, Monopoly or poker, or chess, ideally played with those who you consider to be less than your equal, played for the sheer pleasure of knowing that they are and always will be mere pawns in your diabolical machinations. Or checkers. Some people like checkers. These things are meant to be enjoyed. So I get really annoyed, frankly, when people take games way too seriously. This was a chronic problem in gym class. You know, everyone getting all worked up over a game of dodgeball that was going to be over in half an hour and never spoken of again. And still, 
knowing how people can be prone to bad behavior when that competitive drive kicks in, I foolishly agreed to play a game of football that afternoon. The year was 1997. I'd been invited by uh, an acquaintance to meet up at the local park with some other guys to uh, toss around the old pigskin, as they say. But it wasn't long before things got serious. These guys, these, these bros, you know, were all posturing and yelling at each other and you know, ripping their shirts off like Hulk Hogan for no particular reason. I had hardly ever played football before. I didn't really even understand the rules of the game. Hardly knew how to play, and as such, I became a target for their frustration and testosterone-fueled rage. I spent most of the game standing around getting yelled at, in spite of my best efforts. But then, all of a sudden, I found myself with the ball in my hands. I ran like a hurricane, avoiding the sweaty bulk of the man-children who tried to tackle me. Dodging this one, leaping over that one, I raced for the end zone and cleared it. Sure, it was my team's end zone. But in my defense, it was wide open. Everything grew quiet for a moment, all eyes fixed upon me. What happens exactly when you run the ball into your own goal? The whole logic of the game is broken, like software that succumbs to a debilitating virus. The game is ruined. There's no coming back from something like that. The rules that dictate civility, just barely stemming the tide of violence, collapse. And that is exactly what happened next. Unified in their common outrage, both teams swarmed and began to chase me down. I dropped the ball and ran for the parking lot, looking down at my watch as I sprinted through the grass. You see, a friend of mine was supposed to come pick me up at 3 o'clock. And fortunately, he was a few minutes early. I could see his green Chevy S10 pickup truck just ahead. I dove into the truck bed, shouting at him to drive, drive, as we peeled out of the parking lot just before the barbarian horde could tear me apart limb from limb. We all played football that afternoon, but we weren't playing the same game. I think it's fair to say that Jesus always played by his own rules. And moreover, he tried to change the rules of established Judaism, dramatically reinterpreting Jewish law. For him, it was no longer about sacrifice, but rather love. No longer about the food that you put in your mouth, but rather the words that come out of it. No longer about laws written in scrolls, but rather the laws that are written on the human heart. Jesus was just as Jewish as the religious authorities of his time. He could light a menorah with the best of them. But it's clear that they practiced a very different faith. In the final week of his life, Jesus really seems to go out of his way to antagonize the religious establishment. He spends these last few days in the temple in Jerusalem, arguing with the priests and scribes in an effort to reform the Jewish faith. He's not trying to start a new religion. He's just trying to change the rules of the game. And when he storms the temple with a whip, knocking over 
money changers' temple, uh, tables and setting loose a menagerie of cattle that have been designated to, to be sacrificed, Jesus essentially sabotages the whole operation. In that moment, industry grinds to a halt. The game is abruptly stopped. It's not a coincidence that Jesus was executed just a few days after his outburst at the temple. What do you suppose the Patriots would do to Tom Brady if he started running the ball into his own end zone? Tom Brady does play for the Patriots, right? Did I get that right? Okay. Never sure of these things. Uh, There are many different ways of being Jewish, just as there are many different ways of being Christian. I would also argue there are many different ways of playing football, but I imagine I'm alone in that opinion. There are a few rules, I think, though, that all Christians try to play by. You know, we all try uh, to be honest, to be forgiving, generous, and charitable in both treasure and spirit, even if we don't always agree with each other, even if we don't always succeed in those ambitions. But those aren't necessarily the rules of the world or the rules of our culture. Our society teaches us to punish the wrongdoer, to fear the stranger, and to do whatever it takes to get ahead. Society teaches us to compete with each other, and whoever dies with the most toys wins. But we can choose to play a different game. Back in 1982, in a small town in Iowa, a lanky teenager walked into the Twin Galaxies video arcade. Armed with a fistful of quarters, he made his way over to the Donkey Kong arcade cabinet, his game of choice. He fed a quarter into the machine and watched the screen light up, the hero ready to jump over a tide of rolling barrels and climb the scaffolding to rescue his beloved from the clutches of the giant ape, Donkey Kong. As the boy played the game, clearing one level after another, his score began to rise. Onlookers began to wander over, first one or two, and later a throng that stood cheering him on. The kid's name was Billy Mitchell, and that night he set a new world record of nearly a million points in Donkey Kong achieving what's known in some circles as a kill screen, essentially playing the game until it breaks, the screen becoming cluttered with letters and numbers and various bits of code. It's sort of like breaking the backboard in basketball, just a lot nerdier. Fast forward 25 years when Boeing engineer and all-around average guy Steve Wiebe is laid off from his job in Washington State. Lacking a sense of purpose, Steve decides to take on a somewhat arbitrary challenge for himself, namely acquiring a vintage Donkey Kong arcade machine and setting the new world record for the highest score ever achieved. Now you have to understand something about Steve Wiebe. He's a genuinely nice guy who always seems to finish last. He's never really found his niche in life, never really excelled at anything in particular. He's gone to work, paid his bills, taking care of his family. But he's never really had a chance to chase a dream. He was a star pitcher back in high school, but 
He injured his hand just before the state championship and never played again. He's a solid drummer, but he's never joined a band. He's never really put himself out there. But that all changes when Weeby actually succeeds in breaking the Donkey Kong world record with 1,006,600 points. The ensuing drama is captured in a 2007 documentary, The King of Kong, which chronicles the rivalry that grows between Steve Weeby and Billy Mitchell, that kid from Iowa who set the first record in 1982. Except that Billy Mitchell isn't a kid anymore. He's a grown man with long black hair and a sinister goatee, a successful restaurateur and hot sauce tycoon, the self-proclaimed sauce king of Florida, a villainous foil to Weeby's good-natured everyman. Theirs is a classic story of good versus evil that spans the nation, with Weeby trying to achieve something and demonstrate his self-worth, and Mitchell showing up to block him at every turn, pridefully clinging to a high score that he won in high school because he simply cannot stand to lose. After Steve Weeby breaks the record on the arcade cabinet in his garage, he videotapes the result and he sends it to the Twin Galaxies Arcade in Iowa, which has since grown into an international scorekeeping organization for video game scores and records. Yes, that's actually a thing. But when they validate the score as authentic, Billy Mitchell contests the decision. He says that, well, you know, videotape can be tampered with or doctored. And Weeby needs to prove himself before a live audience. So Weeby accepts the challenge, arranging a live performance in one of America's last surviving video arcades, the Fun Spot Arcade in New Hampshire. And to the amazement of everyone there, Weeby breaks his own videotaped score, cementing his place as the proverbial King of Kong. But then the plot thickens. Billy Mitchell, the sauce king of Florida, seems to have prepared for this possibility. And just a few hours after Steve Weeby's triumph, a VHS tape arrives at the Fun Spot Arcade, courtesy of Billy Mitchell, depicting a score of 1,047,200 points, the most by far that anyone has ever achieved. Now, I have to say, regardless of the tape's authenticity, this is an especially underhanded and hypocritical move, given that Mitchell had contested Weeby's score in the first place because it was videotaped. But Mitchell is an old friend, the guy who runs the Twin Galaxy scoreboards, and his taped high score is accepted without question. Steve Weeby, just a few hours after his first real victory in years, the first thing in his life that he could be really proud of, is forced to concede. The drama continues with challenges from one man to the other, investigations into Donkey Kong circuit boards to verify they haven't been tampered with, and Billy Mitchell publicly snubbing Steve Weeby, turning a good-natured competition into something more ugly and personal. This is all to say that it's clear to me that these two men played by a different set of rules. One of them played to achieve something for once in his life, and he played fairly, rising to meet every challenge and proving himself to be gracious and generous whether he won 
or loss. The other tried to hoard his treasured world record like a dragon, relying on hypocrisy, nepotism, and personal insults. Winning isn't everything, and high scores mean nothing if they aren't earned with integrity. While it's still a bit too early to announce the results of our called forward campaign that we've been uh, engaged with together these last few weeks, I can tell you that it's going very well. We didn't get here by posting everyone's contribution on a scoreboard in front of the church and pushing everybody to outdo one another. We got this far because we're playing the game as Christians ought to play in community and with grace and integrity, each person showing up to do their best. Weeby and Mitchell were worlds, even galaxies, apart. They both played Donkey Kong, but they weren't playing the same game. You know, uh, my older son has been playing games for a few years now. You know, he's seven. But it's only in the last couple years that he's begun to play games uh, by the rules. It used to frustrate me, frankly, the way he'd insist on making up his own rules to any game that we tried to play together. I remember buying the game Twister, you know, thinking, finally, here's one that you just can't screw up. And still, he insisted on playing in his own way. He said we had to take turns on the mat. You know, one gets on, one gets off. One gets... This is not how you play Twister. Not long ago, some friends of mine from college came into town, and you know, they decided that my son needed to learn how to properly play a game of poker. That didn't go so well. Uh, all I can remember is that my son ended up dancing on the dining room table in his underwear while my friends scolded him about poker being a gentleman's game. You know, maybe there's something to be said for playing by a different set of rules in this world when the ones that were given don't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe there's something to be said for trading in something that doesn't work anymore for something that does. Sometimes I take uh, my son to the arcade, just like my dad used to take me. And when we go there together, we play side by side. It's not a competition. It's not about winning. It's not about being right or better than someone else. It might be that way for him, but that's not how it is for me. It's just a chance to be together. And in that regard, this table is a lot like that too. Amen.